Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I just took a look at their new line. They got new cool stuff coming out for 2017. You will like that, too. I'm wearing the socks right now because I always podcast in Mack Weldon's socks. What do you think of those, James? Are they They look good, actually. Uh, are they comfortable? They're super comfortable. Are they warm? It's really cold. They're outside. really warm. That's one of the reasons I like them on a cold day. Mack like Weldon. I never heard of them. Now you have, and now you know you know where you can buy them. MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If for some reason you bought these socks and you didn't like them, you get to keep them. They'll send you the money back. What do you think about that? All right. Uh, you go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. That helps me. It helps people like Jim. And it helps you because you will enjoy your MacWeldon socks, hoodies, sweatpants, and underwear. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. That is a real company with a funny name. I'm here with James Altshore. James, did I pronounce your name correctly? It's good enough, but I, I always prefer, it's like, I'll touch her fast. Altucher. James Altucher. James Altucher will touch her. Now I've got to re-record the whole podcast. We've already <laughs> committed all sorts of HR problems. Thank and you for joining us. Peter, I'm, I am so happy to be on here. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Recode and... A big fan of yours through the years, and we we met a decade ago, a decade one month ago at the Financial Follies in November 2006. I want to explain our first meeting, but we should reset just in case people don't know who you are. I think they all do at this point. The New York Times calls you a self-help guru. You don't like that term, though, right? No, and in fact, um, it's funny. uh, Alex Williams, who wrote the article, excellent guy, excellent reporter, he called me afterwards and said, you know, I just have to tell you, I know you didn't want the word self-help guru in there. They, they put it in there, just giving you a heads up. And I, that was fine. Can but, we call you an inspirational author? No, because, I mean, a lot of my stuff that I write is about how much I've failed. It's really a kind of not so much self-help or inspirational, but me help. <laughs> like, this is how I failed, and then this is how I climbed out from literally the gutter and I say it's not advice, it's just this is what I did, and if you want to try it also, go ahead. Here are things not to do by me, James. <laughs> I, I talk about that too. Um, but you, you write, you podcast, you've got a newsletter subscription business. Yes. You've got a cool multimedia empire that it all revolves around you, which is pretty impressive. So we'll, we'll backtrack. I met you in 2006 at something called the Financial Follies, which I don't know if it still exists, but it was the notion was the, the PR people who specialize in business news – would put together a big boozy party for journalists. I don't know why. And they would also do a song and dance. They were really, they took it seriously. They'd have like Alan Greenspan skits and musicals. And I'm sitting at a table with other random people in rented tuxes. And I sit next to you. And I think you were introduced to me as someone who was either ran a hedge fund or wrote about hedge funds or both. Uh, both. I was running a, at that time, I was running a fund of hedge funds. I had also just started a website, stockpicker.com, which I later sold to the street.com. And I wrote for the Financial Times at that time. So this was one of your careers. You had multiple careers. Yes. I'm, it, I'm a big fan of having multiple streams of career. And, and if someone said, in 2016, this guy is going to be a huge deal as a self-help guru or advice columnist or not advice columnist, I would have said, I don't think so. I would have bet money against that idea. I would have bet money against it as well. I was totally and maybe still am screwed up in every way. I, 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 By the way, that yeah. was an interesting table because uh, you were there. Dan Calaruso was on the other side of me, who uh, was the, the business editor at the New York Post, and he went on to Bloomberg and other places. 
Karen Russell, I think her name was, from the Wall Street Journal, who went on to become a, a veterinarian in England. You've got a really good memory. I remember you specifically. You've got very memorable hair. And also just that you didn't look happy. You looked unhappy. I don't know why I really don't me. like wearing a tuxedo. Yeah. I had to rent it. I was stressed out. I was feeling very shy and awkward. The yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of place you go either because you're required to go or because you think it's really fun to get really drunk with people you work with and or people in PR, which, which I, was in that, I was in that group. Um, yeah, and, yeah I remember the PR firm that I, I like that PR firm that bought that table. But anyway, yeah, nice to see you again. Good to so, see you. So we've got the middle of your career hacked out. At the beginning of your career, you were you were building and selling websites, which is something a bunch of people I've talked to have done in the early days and made a bunch of money over time. Uh, Jason Hirshhorn, yeah, a bunch of other folks, and there were entire public companies based around this idea that you. Oh could, yeah, we were. Um, so basically. I had a company called Reset. We made uh, we specialize in enter- making websites for entertainment companies. And this is just something you get into, sort of you back into, right? Yeah, I knew. Uh, I mean, I knew about the World Wide Web. This is late '90s when that was a, still a novel idea. Yeah, but I was using it ever since the beginning. So I was in one of the first websites. I was going to graduate school, and so I learned at a very deep level the, the whole underpinnings of, of the web and so there was only a few a handful of us in New York City when corporations decided hey we might need a website too so i built the first americanexpress.com timewarner.com hbo.com uh, and i really focused on on entertainment companies so miramax new line cinema uh, I did websites for movies like The Matrix. So if you look at these now, these being incredibly crude, sort of laughably primitive, but at the time were cutting edge, or at least they were on the internet, and that was the thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say design ethos in general has changed. Like people, it's much, it's much simpler. It was people didn't know whether this was going to be a commercial medium or an artistic medium or a marketing medium. People didn't know what to make of it. So we were kind of all taking stabs at the dark. But the first wave. Razorfish, Agency.com, Organic Online, they all went public. And then the second wave, which was my company, all got bought by the ones that went public. And then the third wave all went out of business. And but so in the in the middle wave though, you made real money, right? You yes. sold your company, made actual really million, multiple millions of dollars. Yes, it made made um and and I to to be fair, this is not gonna be bragging because of what I'm gonna the second thing I'm gonna say. I made uh about fifteen million cash and within... So, so you didn't get paid in, in, in dot-com stock, which was kind No, of no, great. I mean, I got paid in dot-com stock, and then I sold it near the top. I was smart. Smart <laughs> so, slash lucky, that's great. So, but, but, then I was stupid. Like, I was so unbelievably stupid as to, I can't even believe you asked me to go on your podcast. Like, so within, within three and a half years of making this money, I had $143 left in my ATM account. What's the dumbest thing you bought with that money? Uh, well, the dumbest thing was probably investments that I made. So you would say, I would say to myself, oh, I'm a smart guy because I'm I made money. I have $15 million. Yeah. I felt you, you feel like money validates your self-worth, like, like net worth equals self-worth. Is that, that's the kind of, um, almost, it, it's almost like society hypnotizes you into thinking that. And so I said, oh, every decision I made. So I thought two things. One is I'm smart. The next is I felt like. I was poor because everybody else was making $100 million. So I, I'm like, darn, I have to invest this money now. So I would put like millions of dollars into the worst, worst companies. And I, I didn't make one single good investment decision. This is 1999, 2000. Right, where everyone's a genius. Yeah, but, everyone's but a genius. But it never occurred to you to say, well, all right, let's put a third of it away and st- sock it away and pay for college or it's a rainy day fund. 
Peter, if you ever invent a time machine, can you please send that message back to the version? Well, I, no, because you know what? I'm happy where I ended up, but it was a lot of pain along the way. I mean, I, I went out and I bought the biggest house you could possibly buy. I was gambling pretty heavily. I was stupid in every possible way. And then suddenly I had this lifestyle I couldn't support and I was lit- and I had no money left and like like zero. Like I called up my parents and I said, "Can I borrow a couple hundred dollars over the weekend so I can buy diapers and food for my two babies?" Cuz we're, we're used to hearing the story by the way when it's a NFL uh, linebacker or some you know, someone who comes in professional sports and they get a lot of money and they and they get taken advantage of and they don't know what to do with it and they're not trained. You're someone who theoretically should have been this should not have been novel to you. Well, well, maybe yes and maybe no. I mean, I never really wanted to go into business. I wanted to write fiction, and then I ended up working at HBO, and I wanted to make TV shows. And then because I had this one skill, which I knew um, was like one of the five people in New York City at that time who knew how to build a website, I was getting phone calls. So I was literally in my cubicle at HBO doing websites for AmericanExpress.com for $200,000. And then finally, I quit my job and started a company. And I actually started a company on the side, and I was still too scared to leave my full-time job. I stayed at my full-time job for 18 months while starting my company on the side until I had about a dozen employees, and they really needed their CEO to be there full-time. And you know, a lot of people think, oh, I have this idea. Should I go out and raise venture capital money? And... I don't really know what the correct answer is, but I'll tell you the right answer for me at that time and probably still is the right answer is absolutely stay at your job, do your business idea on the side, test it out, get a customer, make profits, build up expertise, build up skills, build up salesmanship and, and, and management expertise, and then finally go to your own company, which you've started on the side, and then get more customers and then maybe raise money. The only profitable companies I've ever started, I never raised a dime for. That makes sense. I mean, there is, by the way, the ethos that says, well, if you don't quit your job and jump into the new thing immediately, it means you're not serious about it. Yes and no. I would, I would say the reverse. I was very serious about my company. I was hiring people, and it was also um, – I did it with my, my brother-in-law, and so I very much wanted it to work for both his and my sister's sake as well as my own sake. And I was making money because we were profitable from day one. So I very much wanted it to work. But the way it was going to work and the way business works in general is when you mitigate risk, not when you take risk. So don't go out there and jump off a bridge when there's no net to catch you. Like I wanted to make sure, okay, if something doesn't work out, I have – I've mitigated risk. Right, which again, this this depending on which business magazine or business book you're reading, that that goes against the the mythos, right? You got to burn the boat, so you you got to be all in. As long as you're, you've got a safety net here, you can't really commit to doing the, the the trailblazing thing. Now, of course, that's mostly BS because if you look at m- many of the people who are very successful in say Silicon Valley, they're all coming from positions of privilege to begin with, right? They're never really going to fail, fail. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of people. I, I think Adam Grant writes about this in, in the book Originals. Um, he, he the very first chapter is about some students of his who started that. What's the eyeglass company you buy? The glasses. Warby online? Parker. Warby Parker. Warby Parker. Right. They did not quit their jobs before they started Warby Parker. And so Adam Grant 
regretfully, he admits in the book, refuses to invest because he thinks, as you were saying, that they're not fully committed. But the reality is that's how they were able to build up without feeling like, oh my gosh, we need to raise money and sell off all the equity or, oh my gosh, we need to do anything possible to get this one customer because they, they had a base of operations, which, you know, money's important to, to feed ourselves and to feed our families. Right. So I wanted to make sure I was at least taking care of my risk while building up what became a good business. Like, we were good at what we did. So you build a real business, you sell it for real money, you blow all that money, and then a couple of years later, blow you, it. you have now, when I met you, you have now reconstituted yourself in a second career as finance guy. Yes, which is, which is odd considering I lost all my money investing. Which you tell people as you're doing this, right? Sure. In I've fact, blown all my money, and now I'm going to tell you how to invest. In fact, I mean, you look at many investors out there. I mean, guys like Carl Icahn went bankrupt, you know, in his options trading back in the 60s before he decided to become an activist hedge fund. You know, there, there's all these articles out there, and there's all these, um, I'll, I'll call them pundits, saying, here's the 10 ways to be a leader, or here's the 10 ways to start a business. But I don't want to hear about your 10 ways. I want to hear how things were so bad for you in leadership or entrepreneurship that this is how you learned. This is why you needed to learn the 10 ways to be an entrepreneur. And so it's not such a bad thing. I, I don't even want to call it failure because life is long. And so, if, okay, if things don't go your way for a year or two, that's only one or two years. Then you have another 80 years to kind of make something of it. But if I had never lost that money, look, I, I then read 200 books on investing, finance. I interviewed tons of hedge fund managers. I, I worked for a hedge fund. I, I day traded. I traded many different investment strategies. I wrote, because so, I was a software guy at the very beginning, I wrote software, how to model the stock markets. So I really wanted to understand what the heck was wrong with me? Like, what was my problem? And so I had to look at it from maybe 20 different angles and sort of figure out where I was going wrong. And, and part of it was I didn't know the first thing about investing. I didn't know what a, the first thing about corporate finance. I didn't know anything about innovation and economic history. And I also didn't know my own psychology. Like, what could I handle in terms of loss and, and risk? I want to back up for a second because, and I'm jumping ahead, I've seen you refer both in your podcast and your writing. You say, I don't like failure porn. I like this idea of we're fetishizing failure. But to me, the idea of, and like you just said, like learning from mistakes, learning from your failure is the most valuable or one of the most valuable lessons you can learn. People don't often really want to talk about that candidly. But it seems like you're saying that's actually really valuable. So um, what's the difference between that and failure porn? What's the difference? Well, let me first describe the positives of not necessarily failure but making mistakes. So every good thing comes from a prior mistake. So, I mean, we could think of any example under the sun. But I'm going to take a very basic example, washing your hands in a hospital. Okay, what was the mistake? In the 1800s, there was this one hospital, I think it was in Germany, women were dying during childbirth. And this one doctor, Jacob Semmelweis, uh, realized it was because doctors were going from the morgue straight to delivering babies without washing their hands. And he it stopped, the dying stopped once he got the doctors to wash their hands. So mistake led to a simple solution, yep. which saved now hundreds of millions of lives. And And by the way, people thought he was so crazy for suggesting this, they put him in a mental asylum, I believe, if, I, if I'm getting my facts right. so I cannot verify this. We'll fact check later. <laughs> we'll fact check later. Donald Trump. So every good thing that you could imagine happening has come first from failure. Look, Henry Ford, 
the first Ford company, the first Ford Motor Company went bankrupt. It was all, I think, I think the second one went bankrupt. Right. I think on his third try, he finally got and the assembly line And by the way, this is right. also just in, in any kind of interesting narrative, nonfiction or fiction, right? The hero has to fail at some point, otherwise it's not interesting. Sure. So what is the problem then with failure porn? When you're talking about failure porn, what's the problem? Well, I think you see a I'm lot of articles out there which basically said, which basically are kind of like, I don't know, feel... Uh, they're like glomming for page views, like, oh, look at me. I, my first business failed so badly, but now I can be a success. So failure is not uh, a reason for success. Failure is kind of like one one thing among many that happens on the path to You don't success. succeed because you fail. Right. Failure is something that happens along the way to It's not succeed. a badge of honor to fail. It sucks to fail. Because in Silicon Valley, people will say, oh, no, failure is a badge of honor. I think there's some – people may not be actually honest about that. Um, there's a certain kind of failure that's okay, another kind of failure we don't like. But they'll at least say that out loud. I just hosted a panel on this this spring when people said, oh, no, failure is something we, we endorse. We all love it. Again, I think people don't really want to talk about what real failure is like, what it really likes, what it's really like to go bankrupt, what it's really like to go to zero. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think, like, take Larry Page, okay? Now, this is an extreme example, because Google's obviously the most successful company in history, maybe. But when Larry Page and Sergey Brin started it, they wanted to continue as grad students. They tried to sell Google to Yahoo, Excited, and other places, and they failed. They couldn't sell it. Nobody wanted what they had. And then they couldn't even generate revenues for another four years after that. So did they fail... Did they not? You could argue maybe this was part of their roller coaster, but it wasn't like Larry Page left the Yahoo offices and he went home and said, I'm just going to kill myself. This was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I'm going to just take a bottle of poison and die. So when you, there's, this, what I'm saying is there's a spectrum of failure and you could, and, and I think it's better to, to reclassify it as, as mistakes and, and learning along the way, which is why I said to you, don't go back in the time machine. I'm, I'm glad for what happened. I mean, I had a lot of interesting things and, and met a lot of interesting people along the way. How did you get from the financial advice business running a hedge fund to doing what you do now? You must have failed at that at some point. Yeah. So I would not say, by the way, that I'm super successful. I don't know how to define success. I mean, success always has... You make millions of dollars a year. Well, okay. <laughs> then yes. That's a good start. <laughs> um, but uh, what was happening was I was day trading and I've always been interested in writing. Like I mentioned earlier, I was uh, trying to get fiction published. I was trying to pitch TV shows to HBO. I specialized in websites for entertainment companies. And I, while I was studying finance and trying to get better at investing, I wrote to all of my heroes in the investing space. And I said, can I take you out for a cup of coffee and pick your brain? And uh, the type of email I'm sure, Peter, you get often. And, I've and, sent more of those than I've got. <laughs> so so I've, sent, I've sent quite a few of them as well. And I got exactly zero response back. Which is the right, because if a random person sends you an email and says, can I pick your brain, especially if you are super successful, probably don't want to do that. Right, well, well, it's not like Warren Buffett's going to say to his secretary, Gladys... I, Block I out half an hour for yeah. this random. James Altucher just wrote me, I'm going down to the Kmart and having a cup of coffee. He's paying. Like he's worth a $50 billion or whatever. So, so I came up with a different strategy, which, I, which has changed my life ever since. And I do this every day for the past 15 years or 14 years since, uh, which is I write down 10 ideas a day that can help me. And in this case, I needed to write down 10 ideas for other people to help them so that maybe they would have a cup of coffee with me. So I picked 20 people out, and I sent them all 10 ideas to help their business 
but I really researched them and, it's, and I really tried to come up with good ideas and I didn't have any attachment to it. I said, keep these ideas. I didn't say meet me these for a cup of coffee. These are cold calls. These are cold emails. It was cold emails. I didn't know anybody. And I didn't say, it wasn't transactional. I didn't say meet me. I didn't say I wanted anything. I just said, here's, I, I've really studied your business. I've read this, this, this. I kind of demonstrated that I studied their business and I came up with 10 ideas for them. I wrote 20 emails like that. Three people responded. One of them was a well-known writer who said, and I gave him 10 ideas for articles to write, and he said, these are great ideas. Why don't you write them? And that started me off writing for financial uh, institutions. Another guy was a hedge fund manager who said, why don't you trade my money, my personal money? And Someone allowed you to trade his personal money? A rich person just based yes. on, on 10, on something? And well, he email? met me a bunch of times yeah, after that, and we talked that. about them, and, he, and I demonstrated over and over and over again that I knew what I was talking about. It was a lot of work before he allocated some money to me. But that's how you get your foot in the door. Yeah, and then from that, I was able to go to other hedge fund managers and say, this guy invested with me. Will you invest with me? And so my business was built around trading money for professional investors. So it was so at a high standard. That seems like a business you should have stayed in because that's super lucrative and apparently it's something you were good at. So why aren't you in that business anymore? Well, uh, a lot of reasons. One is I was not very good at going out there and, and holding out my hand and saying, please give me money. So I did raise a reasonable amount. I raised about, in total, my maximum amount I was trading was probably around $60 million, which is very small by today's standards of a hedge fund and it was not... Uh, not really possible to make a good living. And I could have probably stuck with it and built more. But at the same time, I decided, you know what? I don't like doing this. I don't enjoy it. How about I make a website instead? I'm going to take my skills of making websites. I'm going to combine it with my investing knowledge. And I'm going to make like a social media site for people interested in investing. Because and most people I meet who either write about business and or give investment advice the obvious question is, if you know what you're doing, if you know what you're talking about, why aren't you doing this instead of giving me advice or writing about it in force? Well, there, there's more aspects. There's more to it. There's also the psychological aspect of, of building a business, of raising money, and then the specific strategy I was doing then, I was day trading. And so there's a psychology to day trading that just didn't fit me. I was, uh, I, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack whenever the market would tick a little bit up or a little bit down. So, so, but I decided, you know what, I could make money on building a business around my strategies. So I had several strategies that I was using and I built them all into a website and I said, look, here's all my strategies for free. You don't have to invest with me, just you can use all these strategies for free. And these are, you know, I've been used, trading them for years, I've been writing about them, and I, and I even put the signals for all my software on these, on these websites. And how are you going to make money giving away your, your Well, tips? then I gave 50% of the company away to thestreet.com in exchange for them putting ads on every single page from day one and letting me write four articles a day linking back to my site. So I had a million users a month plus ad, three ads per page. On day one. So you make money from ads that thestreet.com sells. And were you selling something on no, top of that? No, so no, I just, wasn't just free content plus Street.com had overflow ads, and they were placing them on my site. And I had zero employees. And so it was just boom. So that's when I met you. Yeah, that, then, was, you, that was exactly when I met you was when I was in beta. So you walked away from that. Why? If that was working. That was working, and I sold it to thestreet.com about six or seven months after I met you uh, for $10 million. So I sold that to the street, and just to make a long story short, within two years, I was dead broke again. So you made $25 million, <laughs> right. went to zero 
twice. I, there's three skills in money. There's making it, keeping it, growing it. So I'm, I've, oh, I don't doubt this. I'm good at making it, but keeping it and I'm, growing it. I'm a it little worried about, about chapter three here because you're <laughs> on the upswing. So I met you. You seem like an unlikely help advice giver. And then a few years later, I'm looking at Business Insider. And I see they are running a column from you, and the name rings a bell. I remember the guy with the weird hair who looked unhappy. And I can't remember if he were giving advice about not buying a home or not going to college or something along those lines. It was great writing. Um, but I thought, Thank you. That, that seems like a really unlikely guy to be writing advice columns that are being syndicated in Business Insider. And then I look, and it turns out your stuff is being syndicated everywhere. How did you get to that place? Well, so I sold this website, and... You know, I was running a hedge fund, and so I was on CNBC a lot. I was on Business Insider a lot. I was writing for the Financial Times. Then I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. Actually, thanks to that for those, that dinner where we met, I started writing for the New York Post because Dan Calaruso had been there. And I said to him, one time I was on CNBC and or, or one of these channels. I don't want to blame them specifically. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I know all of these guys in the, in the – box. Everybody's arguing and yelling at each other. They're whispering in your ear, okay, jump in now and argue. And I'm like, this is such BS. I know all these guys. I know their backgrounds. Nobody here is any good. <laughs> like, nobody knows what they're talking about. They're good at being on TV. The Yeah, the economy's crashing. Nobody has a clue. And And so I said, you know what? There's more basic advice people need than just what stock to pick? That's sort of like stupid advice. Like, oh, okay, is IBM going to go up or down? All right, if you have money and you're going to put a small portion of your net worth into IBM, then go for it. Don't. That's not really where you should be thinking a lot. But people will, without thinking about it, spend millions on a house or spend $200,000 on each on college education for their five kids. And so there's these huge financial decisions that people were making that they weren't even thinking about what all the alternatives are. It's like it's, it's again as if society hypnotizes us into thinking, well, the correct path is college, then own a house, then get a job and get promoted, and then you retire at the end. And in fact, the entire economic landscape is shifting underneath our feet where that might not be necessary. Maybe it will be for some people, maybe it won't be, but yep. here's the alternative. A classic example is writing a book. So it used to be to write a book, you needed to uh, not only write the book, but have an agent, an editor's assistant, an editor, a marketing department, a publisher, and a bookstore purchaser like your book before anyone gives you a dollar for it. Now you can skip all that. You could write your book and upload it to Amazon and you've published it. And you're speaking from experience because you've made money doing this as well. I've I've written 18 books. I've probably published traditionally maybe seven of them and self-published 11 of them. And one of them, one of the self-published books did really, really well, right? Yeah. uh, Choose Yourself, uh, which is kind of about this concept. Uh, Well, I write about many of my mistakes and how I overcame them kind of from an internal point of view. But then I also write about how, look, if you are physically, emotionally, creatively, and spiritually healthy, now you're ready to do some amazing creative thing and skip the gatekeepers and choose yourself. And that, and that book has sold how many copies? That's sold we're, we're probably right now about 600,000 copies. At, at how much each? Any, I've priced it anywhere between 99 cents and $20. And you keep 
some percentage of that, the majority of that. Yeah, right? yeah. The, uh, depending on where I'm selling it, because I've done. When you're in control of your own publishing, you can do various marketing deals with, let's say, different email lists and so on. But I've always made it between fifty and seventy percent. So how much is that? Has that title made for you? Um, probably close to, to one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars. So that's very good. Yeah, it's very part. good. For, you know, for a book, it's you know sometimes you can get an advance that's higher. I'm more happy that. So many copies are in people's hands, so people say, oh, I read Choose Yourself. I mean, I, every day there's a new review, so we've gotten about 1,700 reviews. There's a review just six or seven hours ago. So it seems like this prodigious amount of output you put out, mostly writing, now it's also podcasting, this is something that's now, it's your full-time job, it's your career, but it seems like you were always going to be doing some version of this no matter what you were doing. If you'd stayed in the website building business, you would still be churning out uh, advice and, and columns and blog posts. Yeah, and again, it's not necessarily advice. Advice is autobiography. But, but you, just, you, you have stuff you want to get out of you, and yeah. you'd be doing it regardless of what... Now it's your job to do it, but you'd be doing it anyway, it seems like. You've just got it bursting out of you. Right, like, like for instance, with housing, I've lost two homes. So it's not like I'm just spouting off an opinion. I tell my story, and then I, I kind of suggest this is how maybe I should have thought about it a little differently to change what the outcome, what happened, and how I think about it differently now. Right, but you're not ginning this up because it's a, well, this is a well-worn topic, and I go, ba- I go back to it because it's something people want to hear. This is just stuff that you want to tell people about. You're going to go out on Broadway and tell someone not to buy a house. Right. If, if you could. Or if, if I will. could. Like, it, like, salesmanship's another one. There's all these books on sales. Okay, now, I've, I'm not a natural salesman, but I've had to sell myself. I've had to sell companies. I've had to sell products. I've had to sell services. So I can tell you, without reading any book on sales, these are my tips for sales. Yeah, and by the way, you are a natural salesman. Th- thank you very much. I, I, you, if, if you weren't, you are now. I, yeah. I, I've definitely transformed myself into that. So I'm just trying to figure out when you turn the corner from financial CNBC guy to whatever we're going to call you now, which is not a self-help guru. I, I, would say, I would say it happened around 2010 where I just – I don't know. I got sick of everybody lying and sick of all the opinions that I was seeing out there that didn't make any sense. And at the same time, I got sick of myself. Like I got I – got, I didn't write about what was really happening to me. You know, everybody writes about stocks or Trump or finance or Obama, whatever. But what really happens is we all need to take a step back and say, hey, are we living our lives in a healthy way so that we're set up for success? Like what I described to you earlier with uh, writing 10 ideas a day, that sets me up for success. Not studying whether IBM is a good company or not, or or even housing. Regardless of your opinion, that doesn't set you up for success. Having an opinion on uh, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump doesn't set you up for success. But being physically healthy, being creative, surrounding yourself with good people, this sets you up for success. It's funny because when you describe yourself that way or describe what's important to you or your, your ethos that way, it sounds like, all right, well, James fits somewhere in, I mean, seems like the spectrum of people who give advice and tell people how to help themselves, and it seems like really sort of uncontroversial. And then if I read anything you write, whether it's on Facebook or on your post or or on your blog, a lot of it is about how you failed and how you're miserable and how you're not good at things, and a lot of it is about your self-doubt and insecurity, and that seems very different from, I don't spend a lot of time following this stuff, but the Tony Robbins of the world and then that spectrum of people who are sort of purely positive. It seems like you at least half your stuff is sort of about negativity and self-doubt and insecurity. Sure. And and look, and this is not, I think, I mean, I hear from a lot of people who have been helped by Tony Robbins. Tony, Tony's been on my podcast. I'm going on his podcast. He 
does an incredible service for a lot of people. But what I am really dying to know is when Tony was hitting bottom and how he climbed up from that. Because right. he did many, he hit bottom a couple of times. And I want to know the details. That's and what that I is really part of know. a lot of inspirational speakers, and especially in religion, do talk about that, right? Or, or it's overcoming substance abuse or whatever. And it's part of the narrative. But generally, they're preaching a sort of more positive message and they don't spend a lot of time in the negative part. And so many of the things I see coming through my feed from you are about, I screwed this up. I lost my wife. I lost one house. Um, so it's clearly something that, that works for you in the way you tell your stories. Yeah, and I think it allows each time I hit a topic, and sometimes I talk about other people who hit you know, hit bottom in various ways and how they came through it. I think that's a little bit what my podcast is often about, and I'll write about the people on my podcast. But I think for me, it's like it's it's attacking an issue from different angles. So when I lost a customer... Why did I lose that customer? Or when I lost when I lost all my money, why did I? What was I doing wrong that causes the loss of all that money? Or what did I do right when I'm bouncing back from it? So there's lots of different ways I can bounce back with a story, and people could see. Then these are the steps I took, but I do it in the form of a story that is truth to me. You got Tim Ferriss, uh, who I think of as is one of the archetype of Silicon Valley, right? Self possessed. I figured out how to hack my body. I figured out how to hack work. I figured out how to do this thing. It takes a week, and you can now do it in four hours. Self assured, super positive, mind over matter, and you got Tim to talk about depression and suicide, which is really affecting. It's it's uh, one of the more recent podcasts. Yes, no, that was a, that was a really interesting podcast, and and Tim's book Tools of the Titans is is really a, a special book. And but again, and I'm glad Tim did this uh, with me. Is what's the journey? You know, it's like you were saying, kind of the 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 arc of the hero or non-hero, depending on which way you look at it. What's the journey that got you to here? Why did you need to work four hours or literally you were going to kill yourself? So what what happened along the way? Because that gives me a, a chance to trust you and, and to say, okay, well, I'm feeling this way too, or I have felt this way in the past. How did you how did you get out of it? And people can ask the same thing for me. And I can say, look, it started here. I was in the gutter. I was thinking all these thoughts that were horrible. And here's how I climbed out of it. So I want to make sure people who are listening understand what it is you're doing today and, and how you're making money, right? So so there's a podcast. There's some ads in that, but that can't be the bulk of, of what you're doing. In terms right. Of the podcast is, is in the black, but it's not like a, you know, I, I think the podcast industry is growing. Money. It's not the most lucrative business in the world yet. It keeps the lights on. Keeps the in lights the podcast on. Podcast studio, and then so there's a newsletter business that seems to be the bulk of the business. Is that right? Yeah, I mean books, newsletters, information products. Again, I try to figure out where are people not getting the help that they need. So it might be the case that somebody is sitting in their cubicle and they feel stuck, but they're they don't know what to do. And I go out there and find different opportunities that you can do and businesses you could start on the side just like I did and I write about that. So, But so much of that stuff is free, right? It's in my Facebook Some feed, of that it's on is your free. site. So Some of that is where I do a little bit more extensive research. I've hired a team of people. I have about a dozen employees and they go out there and interview people and research and, and study and, things. And that's what you sell is a subscription to that? Yeah, I sell about four different products. So maybe an entrepreneurship product, maybe to investment products related to strategies that I've personally These are, these are newsletters, right? Yeah. They're the equivalent of newsletters, and people are paying what for them? Uh, I range in price from $80 a year to $2,500 a year. And so that's the core of your business. That's where you're making yes. money. That's what generates millions of dollars a year? Yeah. So last year, 
we did about 17 million in revenues and about 1.7 million in profits. And we started. And that's with a dozen in, employees. Yeah, we started in February of last year. So I was really proud of it. This year, uh, I focused more on the bottom line. We'll do about maybe 1.9 to 2 million in net income and maybe about 11 million in revenues. And, and you're the sole shareholder? No, I have a couple of shareholders. You see, you brought in investors? Uh, well, I didn't quite bring in investors. I brought in strategic partners, people who have huge, huge email lists who are – the email lists are composed of people who buy products like this. So this – so so in exchange for them being investors, they get uh, – not investors or shareholders. They also get cra- a crack at selling my products and then I split. The reason my profit margins were low last year, for instance, is that they take – an affiliate fee, so they take the bulk of the top line revenues that they sell, and then eventually I get uh, make more money on renewals. That's how that industry works. So you built a seventeen million dollar subscription business in the last couple of years. Yes, and to get to that, you said two thousand ten is where you sort of started. So what did you need? What were the tools you needed to build to that point where you could do that? So, so that's a great question because I think many people aren't really aware that a this is a great industry to be in. You see a lot of traditional print media that can't survive on advertising. That's because this type of media, subscription media, works better. But to do that, you need to do a little bit of what I did, which is just write an enormous amount for free. To build that following, to build the funnel in sales talk? Yeah, and I, I never asked for a dime from anyone, and I still give out even more content for free because now I have this team supporting me. I, I'm able to give out even more content for free. So even if you never spend a dime on any of my products, and if you don't want to, there's no, you, you know, I have a big free email list made up of mostly people who've never bought a single item from me, and that's that's great. So I, I have a, the motto of the company, and the company's called Choose Yourself Media. The motto is message over money. So I'm very happy when the message gets out. If somebody wants to dive deeper, there are plenty of ways I can help them, and and that's when they can buy a product. How much of this is digital media broadly, internet broadly, versus Facebook, Twitter, I don't know, LinkedIn? You, I messaged you via Facebook because apparently we're Facebook friends. This is the first time we've met in ten years, so clearly you thought about. I think I friended about... you like the day after we had we had dinner. So I don't know. No, could not have been because I was there. I don't even think Facebook existed yet. I certainly wasn't on it for a couple of years. So you've uh, you've apparently mm. been very assiduous about using social media, using all this stuff. I'm, I'm so I'm assuming a lot of this this would not exist without Twitter or Facebook. At, it, it's at all. all related. Like de- like I ha- so so Ev Williams who started Twitter and then Medium was on my podcast and he says says something very interesting which is that destination sites don't really exist anymore. Now, that's not true for sites like um, that have already been around and established. You know, Recode kind of spun out of ultimately, you know, if you date it back, the Wall Street Journal. So some destination sites exist. But to, to think you can today start a brand new destination site, it's, really hard. Is, it's very hard and maybe foolish. But there are many aggregator sites like LinkedIn, Medium, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, to some extent, the Huffington Post, uh, Business Insider, you know, they're not, they're not quite aggregator sites, but if, if you reach a, a certain bar, you can start publishing there. Yeah, I went it, to, I went to, I guess your Twitter bio today, and it told me to go follow you on Instagram. Something told me to follow you on Instagram. I thought it was an interesting place for you because you're not a graphic person. I do not look like an Instagram person, and you're not living a blingy life, right? It's, right, but you know, Instagram fascinates me, and the idea of not having a caption to photos but stories uh, appeals to my writing side. It's like a writing constraint because there's a, a very steep character limit, so you can't write a full story. So I, I'm fascinated. I also am interested in photography and getting better. So I always want to get better at the media that I'm not so good at. 
But um, I think you need to be everywhere. You need to publish a book. Um, I have a new book coming out, Reinvent Yourself, uh, coming out January 5th, uh, which also is about us, you know, what's after choosing yourself. Well, you always are in a constant state of reinvention, just like I've switched from programming to entertainment to business to finance and, and so on, to back to writing. But you kind of have to be everywhere. And then you build up this pent-up demand and then once you do decide where should I use this pent-up demand, uh, how can I best help people or make an impact with this demand, then you have a business. How do you uh, – do you want someone to be a lifetime subscriber from you or do you think or they should extract a couple bits of value from me and then use that to improve their life and then move on and no longer pay me a subscription fee? Uh, really, it's up to them. I don't mind either. Uh, what I really focus on – is the free content that I produce. And then, like I said, I have a dozen employees. Together we put out the right. more valuable content. It takes, it takes a village, really, to put but out I'm valuable content. I'm just thinking content. about terms of the value. But like, I worked at Forbes, and if you spent any time looking at what Forbes actually said, they'd always say, well, you can go, here's an interesting company you can invest in, and here's an interesting story. Here's an inspirational story about someone who beat the odds and built a company. But all the real investment advice, when it came down to it, was buy an index fund and then stop doing any, any other investment. And the, the only thing you should do is figure out which index fund you should buy because the one that's the lowest cost, which meant if you really read Forbes, what you should do is stop paying Forbes for subscription for advice. You should just get one copy and pick the index fund and be done. And it seems like you might have that natural tension with the stuff you're selling. Sure. I mean, in general, most people should not be buying stocks, individual right. stocks. Most people, I actually don't even think most people should be in the stock market at all. I don't even think you should buy an index fund. I think the best investment you can really make is in yourself. Like if I take, I'll just take the photography thing as an example. Let's say I'm sitting in a cubicle and I feel stuck and I want to do something else with my life. There's, there's many places I could take a photography course and then I can call up 50 of my friends and say, hey, I'll, do, I'll shoot your wedding for $500 and now you're, you get a start. You, you get a return on investment that's much better than the, the stock market. So, so this kind of invest in yourself, make your own career, choose you, this would work for you in any circumstance, right? In any era, you, you have the ability and skill and drive to – make something of yourself. In your case, you've done it now three different times. Do you think it's really applicable to a big swath of the country that, that has really limited skills, really limited opportunity, and they maybe they live somewhere that's pretty remote? It seems how much of this would work to people who are not really well-educated, hyper-intelligent people in New York City? Well, I think in the – first off, this is, we're talking about – we just told a 25-year a, a story about me. So I think it can – work for everyone. I mean, we're not talking about one specific thing, but the idea of, you just said, well-educated, you're referring to some, you know, many people, let's say, don't have degree, college degrees. Well, those are the exact people who could take, there's so many online courses, and there are so many that are set up for beginners to advance, that anyone today can take a 15-minute online course about you know, website programming or WordPress development, and suddenly you do that for a couple of weeks, you can make a website. Because this is one of the narratives of the election, right, is, well, the, the, the coastal elite, et cetera, however you wanted to group them, these are the people the economy is really benefiting, they're the winners, and, and they're moving forward, and the Trump voters, again, this is the narrative, are stuck in the middle of the country, and they don't have opportunity, and they're angry, and somehow they believe that Donald Trump is going to bring back some vision of the past, right, where they got to get a good union job, or not a union job, right, so, at so, a factory, right? But you're 
saying they're not going to get that either, and they should. What you're saying is what you're offering them would work for them. Right. Well, th- think about it. What you just said was was a very important narrative. Like that was the narrative of the election. That was the, that was the real battle. And there is some truth to the narrative, whether or not Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, two very wealthy people from New York City, uh, subscribe to that narrative is remains to be seen. But look at the auto industry. I mean, you've seen it here. You talked about it constantly. We're, we're moving to an economy that with, with driverless cars. So that's going to eliminate 90% of the auto industry. Those jobs aren't going to be replaced. It's not right. like everybody who worked on uh, the horse and buggy then moved into the auto industry. Those jobs are going to be wiped out. And so what, they, what do they need to do? Well, they need to figure it out. And there's thousands of online courses that can help them start to figure out, well, look, what was I interested in when I was six years old, seven years old, eight years old? I liked to draw, I liked looking at houses, or I liked, I don't know, photography, and and start taking courses to see how these interests from your childhood aged into adulthood where you could potentially make money. There's other things they can do too. Well, I've been at this job, I've been sitting wrong for 20 years at an assembly line, now I need to get a little healthier. I need to surround myself with other like-minded people so I could get emotionally healthier. I need to start being creative every day so I can improve my creativity. There's everything we can do starting today in, in, in incremental bits. I didn't want to let you go without letting you do the, the full don't go to college lecture because I want, I want, sometimes my wife listens to this, and on the off chance she does, she's a college professor. So whenever I mention this Where's she idea, a college professor? Uh, Lehman College, one of the CUNY schools here in okay. New York City. I'm sure she likes her work. And when I mention the idea that, that maybe our two kids may not go to college, maybe optional, she gets livid. I mean, it's part, I think, because it's obviously critical of her work, or she interprets it that way, and also because she really got a lot of value out of college. And she just thinks, she it's like, I don't know, it's like endorsing racism or something. Like, it's a no, it's a third rail, can't touch it. So I'm going to let you touch it. Well, okay. Thanks for passing the baton to me. Hopefully I, I won't run into you and your wife in the street and, and she hopefully she won't be carrying yeah. a loaded gun. But um, look, right now, 48% of jobs held by recent college graduates, let's say kids ages 22 to 30, 48% of those jobs are, being, are, are jobs where you don't even need a college degree. So it's unclear uh, who the college degree is helping. Because then on the other 52%, how many of them are so bogged down by student loan debt that they're in trouble? What if you had taken those four years and spent a year traveling around, which is probably less than a year's tuition of college, another year taking free online courses or maybe cheap online courses, and then started uh, trying out different jobs based on what your interests were? And of course, if you wanted you know, a, a, a wide swath of the social, you know, sciences or whatever you could read. Books are certainly available to everyone. Online courses are available to, to everyone. So there are many alternatives, and I think people should at least look at the alternatives. It's not mandatory that you get a certificate to get a job. You need skills to get a job, so learn the skills. You, the, the entire MIT what if you're super, science What if you're super cynical about college and say, this doesn't matter, this is about a network? Mm-hmm. You need a network of like-minded people from basically probably a similar background, and that network is going to get you into a job and get you into a, a, the, the next school if you have to go to the next school, and that's the important part. If of you want to work at Goldman Sachs, if you want to work at, you know, depends on the tech company, you know, some, some jobs do seem to, or if you want to be a lawyer, by law you have to go get a college degree and then a law degree, so some jobs are regulated where you have to get a, a paper certificate. So other jobs, it's kind of like uh, an old boys network like Goldman Sachs or some banks. But in general, we're moving towards a world where you just need to demonstrate skills. And because of the way online, both information and, and entertainment is disseminated, you can demonstrate those skills 
in social media and people can say, oh, that guy's interesting. He knows what he's talking about. He's got a blog about building a car. So we're going to hire him to build this self-driving car or he's got an opinion on photography that I've never seen before. He's showing all his photographs on Instagram. We're going to hire him to shoot our wedding or whatever. So there's, there's many ways to learn and there's many ways to show your skills other than going to college to learn and other than having a paper certificate to show that you have some skills. You are, you are upbeat. You are relentlessly optimistic. Um, you love social media because it helps you uh, do your job. Are, do you ever have second thoughts about social media and online in general and, and sort of the downside of that? You know, uh, what, tell me what, what you think the downside is. I think it can, um, is, even though it can connect lots of people, it can also, I think, engender loneliness. You sort of tunnel into your own world. Um, I yes. think it's and you can. Um, it's it, it's a great conduit for spreading misinformation or reinforcing. But um, as uh, as we've seen now, the, the the mainstream news outlets are are also a conduit for spreading misinformation on on both sides of the table. We've seen we've seen biased news on Fox. We've seen biased news on MSNBC. And and look, the a yeah, show like the Daily not, Show has but, been great for kind of showing the contrast. But they're but they're not equivalent. And now we're talking about a world where anyone with either bad intent or they're just stupid can say something on Facebook and their and their opinion is now treated equally as someone who's it's one thing to have a difference of opinion, right? But, but well thought out and reasoned and here are facts and we disagree over sort of what those facts right. mean. It's another thing to actually go ahead and say we're gonna make something up or we're we're gonna deliberately deceive people. And without even getting into fake news, right? Just you can you the internet can definitely expose you to a lot of stuff well, or it can or it can it can hem you in and keep you can reinforce what you already think. Well, in general, and this is a whole other topic which we don't have to get into, but in general, people really shouldn't be reading the news. Uh, you know, the, the journalism and news, it's really the first draft of history. It's the rough draft of history, and it's going to change many times over the course of years. So if I have a choice between reading today's newspaper or reading a really great book, which is both going to inform me and make me a better writer, I'll certainly choose the book. Uh, it's better entertainment. It's it's it'll improve my skills. It'll increase my knowledge. Whereas a newspaper, okay, did they see some Aleppo in Syria? That's not changing my life here today. Uh, I can kind of get a summary once a week, you know, just looking at what's trending on Twitter on a Sunday. Yeah, I, I feel that way about any sort of breaking news event that even despite, you know, I'm in the business of writing about it and looking at it, um, that in general, you're better off waiting a week, waiting a month, waiting a couple months to get a, a real history. That said, you should know what's going on Why? about you. Just like broadly, I'd rather read, right? I'd rather read, like again, The Undoing Project by, by Michael Lewis just came out and Tools of the Titans by Tim Ferriss just came out. I would much rather read those books to improve my life. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about fast twitch. I got to know what happened. I, I got to know who shot who in, in, in Turkey today, right? It's these astonishing photos. It's not really actually going to change your life immediately. But it, you should know why Turkey and Russia are at odds. Why? So you can understand when Donald Trump says he wants to do something with Russia or with Turkey or against Turkey, whether that's a good or bad idea. Why? Like, why? Why? why do you, what are you going to do about the Turkey-Russia situation? Just well, because, at some point, I might vote on it, right? Okay. And your vote in New York City meant nothing, right? Because New York State goes one way and, and Wisconsin goes another way. Now, right. maybe there are some states that where it's a little more important... But in, in most states, it's not important who you vote for. Yeah, no, the Electoral College sucks. Electoral College meeting today as we speak. Sucks. But I would rather be an informed citizen than not. I'm, and again, I, I understand the point you're making, and I agree with you up to a point, which is 
I don't need to turn on CNBC and know which stock went up and down. That does not influence my day day to day. And it shouldn't, right? And same thing with sort of um, whatever fake debate there's going on in CNN. But I should definitely know why Trump did or didn't win the election or he won the election. I should know why that's happening, right? Okay. Okay. So, so again, I shouldn't the wait years still, to find out. Like, we still don't really know why he yeah. won. Like, again, it's the, it's the first draft of history. I've seen probably 20 different opinions on, on both sides of, of why he won. It's a very interesting game to study and analyze if you're interested in it. But if you're not interested in it, I don't see how it changes your life uh, specifically. Like, there's not much in the news that's going to change your life. Uh, now, you brought me to a This case. is like me telling my wife that we shouldn't send our kids to college. Like, to get the defensiveness. Right. But, but, you know, I agree with you that Perhaps, okay, I'm very concerned for my daughters about Roe versus Wade, and so this Trump is, is important to me. Or I'm very concerned because I buy uh, all my, the components of my business from China. What's happening with Trump? So there's very specific, impo- very important cases where the news might be important to me. Let's say I have an 18-year-old son. I don't want him to go to war. Then Trump and Hillary's stance on isolationism and interventionism is very important to me. I need to know the answer to that. But in general, 99% of news, I don't feel a a big urge to know. Well, the other way to look at it is if if you're not going to be informed, then people who are going to make decisions in your absence will be informed. But they do it anyway. Yeah. Nobody has – nothing ever has happened in America with my permission. (laughs) Right. But but if we go all the way down the track, then we just cede all power to people who really have purposes that that don't align with mine. And I never have any choice in the matter. But fortunately – uh, 60 million plus people do care about it on either side. Right. And so... But they're reading. They're, they're doing something. I feel like and we should be high I'm if we're reading, have this discussion. I'm reading like really great books like The Undoing Project and Tools of the Titans and you wrote a book, I'd read it. No, and, I will not read a book. Uh, a book. And so these books inform me so that maybe when the second draft of history is coming along and someone asks my opinion, then I'm very informed. And I could say, look, this is what happened in the 1970s when Nixon reached out to China and the American population reacted in a certain way. Then I can make an opinion. You want to be well-informed, but on a time delay. On a time delay, yeah, because I think it's, I think it's more valuable. And I think when I see the, the, the fourth-hand analysis of a, a very important historical situation, I'm going to get, like, really well-thought-out, almost curated opinions, as opposed to, like, this rough, like, oh, cr- crisis in the two Chinas. You know, there's no crisis. Nobody's going to war with each other. He took a phone call from Taiwan, and now there's a crisis. So you can tell I read the headlines, at least. Yeah, so you got some sense of what's going yeah. on. Well, that's just it too. From social media, you get a no matter what, you're going to get a sense. We're inundated so much with you drive through Times Square, you look at the ticker, you get a sense of what the headlines are. Uh, so, do you do you turn this stuff off? Do you say, "All right, I'm at five o'clock. I'm done with the internet," or do you are you on a media diet? Uh, well, I'm on a news diet. I never read the news. Never, okay. ever. I'm clear on that. Uh, read the news. What about screens in general? Do you say, all right, I'm only getting this much screen time, or are you someone who's immersed in it constantly? No, I mean, I read it on a Kindle that, that has the e-ink, you know, so it doesn't, yep. like, shoot uh, light at you. Um, but so I'll read on a on a regular Kindle, which I, I don't have any books. I actually gave away all of my books. Oh, how did I let this go? This is your signature thing right now. You have 15 things. I'm signing my name to it. You have 15 things this is this is this is your you you literally own 15 things and then you've, you've moderated this a bit right because you were you have an outfit so that counts as a thing yeah yeah so i have like let's say two outfits a computer 
Kindle. You don't own a home? And a, I, I don't own or rent. I Airbnb. Where are you sleeping tonight? Uh, I have an Airbnb on Prince and Crosby tonight. So you're just bouncing around? Just bouncing, bouncing around. Bouncing around Manhattan? Yeah. Do you get to Brooklyn? Uh, I haven't been to Brooklyn yet. No. So you're, so you're just airbnb You don't want to own stuff. And uh, and why, and that that's this year, right, that you did yes. that? Yes. And what prompted that this year? Well, I found that I was traveling quite a bit, and I was never missing the things that I I had like all of these possessions. And so I figured, okay, well, I had two leases on apartments I was renting, one in the city, one in uh, uh, about 60 miles north. And then both leases were coming up at the same time. And so I I didn't want to do the Marie Kondo, you know, the art of magic, the the magic art of tidying up. I didn't want to do her thing where you kind of hold everything and you say, do I love this? And then I'll keep it or not keep it. I just wanted to get rid of everything because I wasn't missing anything while I was traveling. I wasn't even thinking about my possessions. So I hired somebody to go to my main house and basically she pulled up with a truck and her entire family like invaded my house and I said you can either keep, donate, sell, or throw out everything. You just but said the, you're like locust, just come take my house away. Right. And, and I, I, I ran into the landlady who I was renting from, didn't know I was doing this. She told me a few months later, like, wow, you are really like clean. That place was spotless uh, by the time you left. And I was like, thank you very much. And, and do you, I don't take care of my stuff. I still have lots of stuff, but occasionally I'm like, oh, I wonder where that photo of iced tea is that my friend made for me in 1990. I wish I, wish I had that. And maybe it's buried somewhere. Maybe it's gone. I don't know. I kind of wish I had it. Do you have that regret ever? A little bit. I mean, I had... I mean, I had lots of stuff. I had trophies uh, from tournaments I'd won as a kid. I had photos. I had uh, uh, artwork. I had collectibles. Like, I had my little Dr. McCoy doll next to my computer. I had computers, TVs, beds, mattresses, uh, sheets, dishes. I had everything that you could possibly have in a house after 40 years of living that I'd carried around with me from, like, my parents' house onward. And I decided I just... I just wanted to start from scratch. I didn't want it anymore. Not out of, I wasn't depressed. I wasn't anything. I just literally wanted to start from scratch. I don't know if I'll always do this, but right now it's making me much happier. It makes you happy. I would assume that you'd feel lighter or cleaner or there's weight removed or or you just, or none of those things that apply. You just don't miss it. I, I just don't miss it. So uh, occasionally I'll say, "Oh, where's my Dr. McCoy doll?" But uh, that's that's bones. <laughs> that that's about it. Wow, that's a very specific Star Trek reference. I like it. Yes, uh, and I like talking to you, James Alcher. Thanks for coming. Thanks. It's a guys. very Kafka esque interview. I just wanted to say that even if it wasn't. You're allowed. <laughs> um, I was like on trial. The trial, Kafka esque. Yeah, or metamorphosis. I, I'm making a stretch. Yeah, someone had traduced Joseph K. I was. I learned traduced. That was my big word from Kafka. And now I feel smarter. Thanks for making me smarter. By the way, you, you read that in a book, not in a newspaper. Yeah. That's what makes but, you smarter. But, but novels used to be published in newspapers and magazines back, in, back in the day. We're going to leave it there because I got James to concede a point. Thanks for coming. Thanks to you guys for listening. You probably listened to this in 2017, so happy new year. Let's hope we have a better year in 2017. You know how to get this because you're listening to it right now. You know how to find our other Recode podcasts like Recode Decode from Kara Swisher. Lauren Good has Too Embarrassed to Ask. Recode Replay has all the awesome conference audio from our fancy conferences. Speaking of fancy conferences, I'm doing one in February, south of Los Angeles. It's a good place to be in February. It's called the Code Media Conference. We'll have Eddie Q, who runs Apple's media business, Roy Price, who runs Amazon's business. Instead of me telling you about that, let's have Dan Roth, the executive editor of LinkedIn, tell you how great this conference is. I have met people that I still keep in touch with from just being in the in the halls of that conference afterwards and getting drinks. 
There are people I never would have met before that I now talk to all the time for ideas and getting them to write on LinkedIn. It was invaluable to me. Thank you, Dan. Thanks again to you guys. Thanks to our awesome sponsors. Thanks to Digital Media for distributing this show. This is Recode Media. I'm back next week with another great guest. See you then.